the entire automotive industry is getting out of fossil fuel burning engines into electric and whether electric is the ultimate answer or if we got to go hydrogen we got to think about the exact same dramatic shift that we will need to take a turn in direction if we want to fight AMR we, if we continue on this course it's not going to happen overnight it's not going to be as drastic short term as covid but it is that silent pandemic where if unchanged and and again the studies are there the reports are there by the year 2050 if we continue then we would have up to 10 million people a year die from multidrug resistant infections and at, at a cost of potentially up to 100 trillion that would be more people dying from AMR superbugs than from cancer and other major diseases combined this is the public health insight podcast Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, Will and Gordon spoke to Mr. Oliver Schacht, the CEO of a precision medicine company known as Optgen, about the drivers of antimicrobial resistance (AMR), the impact of COVID-19, and how precision medicine can help to combat emergence of AMR. In the final part of the discussion, Mr. Schacht remains to discuss the geographical distribution of antimicrobial resistant infections, why Big Pharma no longer prioritizes the research and development of new antibiotics or other antimicrobials, and the need for coordinated multi-sectoral approaches to tackle AMR as a top 10 global threat. This is where they left off. When we're talking about antimicrobial resistance, compared to a lot of other global health threats is this something that's affecting more higher income countries more lower income countries a mix of both is like is everyone kind of at risk here or what's what's from your experience what what are you seeing here it is truly a global threat bacteria do not discriminate between rich and poor they do right. not discriminate between uh, ethnicities they do not discriminate between geographies on the planet Um you may see slight variations in prevalence of certain bugs in certain parts of the world but that challenge of you know hospital superbugs is a global challenge and unfortunately it also requires a global response and i think the one if there is anything good coming out of the covid pandemic the one good thing that i sincerely hope that we're all going to remember is there is a tremendous value of rapid infectious disease diagnostics that is the the first step of course you eventually need to treat it vaccines are great but without a rapid diagnosis you don't know what you're facing so we're seeing it there there are geographic um variances so within the united states for example you see significantly higher prevalence of um AMR in the northeast of the country you know New York um Boston DC not too surprising a these are densely populated urban centers with a lot of travel uh, in normal circumstances uh, certainly uh, somewhat less here in the last year and a half but these AMR superbugs get spread globally very quickly through people moving around the planet uh and then you know you'll find them uh more often than not starting out in in densely populated areas if you look at europe again one of the things you see the farther south and east you go the worse it gets you go you go north to scandinavia 
it's it's uh, significantly less of a challenge than if you go to Italy or Spain or Greece. You go to the Middle East, you're seeing some of the worst AMR bugs that you could imagine. And part of that has to do with climate, but far more important is the philosophy and how we use and how we prescribe antibiotics. Uh, we do, as option, we do a lot of business in the Middle East. Some of the conversations um, I've had with uh, leading experts in, in, in these countries uh, and leading microbiologists, when you sort of ask them, well, is the challenge that, you know, antibiotics in your country are available over the counter? And I've literally had leading physicians look at me, lean forward and say, no, Oliver, it's not over the counter. It's under the counter. If you realize that some of these countries, and it's true in uh, parts of uh, very well-developed Asian countries, Japan being a prime example, you're able to get for just about any infection you might have, you can get yourself just about any antibiotic. There are parts of this world where you're able to walk into a pharmacy and purchase out of pocket the last reserve antibiotics. Colistin is a drug of last resort. So when all else fails, when you've kind of determined that your standard broad spectrum antibiotics don't work, your next line of defense, your third line of defense doesn't work, the last drug that still in many, many cases tends to work is colistin. Why? Well, because it has dramatic side effects, it has liver and kidney toxicity, which is the reason we haven't been using it in the, uh, in the developed world for the last 30, 40 years or only very, very rare that we've been using it, but that's why it's still so effective. Now, if we're using those last line of defense drugs to self-treat uh, a common, you know, sometimes really not life-threatening infection, we're really gonna be creating situations and there are already um, AMR markers indicative of certain bacteria that have become resistant to colistin, which really then you're out of options. and. Um, uh, and at that point, again, you, you may face situations where nothing works. If you, and, and I know I, I said I didn't want to comment on agriculture too much, but one of the situations is we use antibiotics in farming. And some of it, of course, is justified. But the reality is, at a global scale, one of the side effects of uh, antibiotics is not just to keep animals healthy. It is to have them grow faster, uh, put on meat faster. Uh, it's a pure economic uh, calculus there. If you know that colistin as a drug, which again is the last line of defense in human infections, is being used in pork farming in China, uh, you know you can imagine that that may very well create situations that are uh, going to you know potentially spiral out of control quite quickly. So it will require, and in, in, in many respects, um, AMR as a uh, one of the existential threats to humanity. Again, the World Health Organization put it out there as one of the 10 most dangerous threats to human health is like climate change. The science has been around for 20 plus years. There was a report in the year 2000, which I remember vividly, by the World Health Organization. The report was called Bad Bugs, No Drugs. That report saw an update in, I believe it was 2018, and the reality is not only did everything that they had projected in 20 in the year 2000 have become true, it happened faster and it was far worse. Now, again, you, you take the analogy of climate change. 
if anybody had uh, had told us, and I come from Germany originally, uh, the heartland of some of the finest automotive uh, companies in the world, um, if anybody had told me 10 years ago that I, in my lifetime, would see a situation where the entire automotive industry is getting out of fossil fuel burning engines into electric, and whether electric is the ultimate answer or if we got to go hydrogen, we got to think about the exact same dramatic shift that we will need to take a turn in direction if we want to fight AMR. We, if we continue on this course, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be as drastic short term as COVID. But it is that silent pandemic where if unchanged, and, and again, the studies are there, the reports are there, by the year 2050, if we continue, then we would have up to 10 million people a year die from multi-drug resistant infections. And that, at a cost of potentially up to 100 trillion, that would be more people dying from AMR superbugs than from cancer and other major diseases combined. So it is one of those existential threats that we really need to take seriously. But it, it's also, as I said earlier, it, it doesn't almost doesn't matter if we take action here in the U.S. or if there's, you know, a happy island somewhere in Europe in, you know, let's call it Switzerland that, um, you know, kind of decides we need to take a global approach. Because if we don't, it doesn't matter. If we try to fight it just at home, we don't realize that these bugs will travel with people around the planet within less than a day. Um, those outbreaks, um, you know, can, can come hit us at any time. And again, that's my, my hope that uh, it was a wake-up call to us, all of us. And the good news here is we have, we have drugs, unlike COVID, where it's a virus and we don't have drugs, but we do have drugs. We have dozens and dozens of antibiotics. They're very effective drugs and they work. We just can't continue overusing them. And we have diagnostics. These solutions exist today. We don't have to scramble and get out. These tests are there. We just got to use them. And then thirdly, it's about education and messaging. It's, it's mind-boggling that, um, you know, some of the very simple things about um, antibiotic stewardship, simple, you know, being smart about how you test patients, how you isolate patients, how you take care of them. Uh, and combine that stewardship with, uh, you know, approaches to uh, to therapeutics as well as diagnostics in your hospital. Um, when I grew up in the 1970s, my parents used to take my sister and I to the, the, the you know, pediat pediatric doctor. Every time we had an infection, it was Bactrim, kind of like heart hitting antibiotic. It was as much a shut up the parent kind of drug as it was trying to treat the infection in the child. My son has not seen an antibiotic in his almost 12 years on this planet because we really should reserve antibiotics to those situations, those serious infections when you really, really need it. Vast majority of infections that we face are, are viral in the community and frankly, antibiotics, not only do they not work, every time we use antibiotics in those situations, we're compounding the problem of AMR. Wow, that's well, that sounds a... Uh... Very comprehensive uh, explanation, Oliver. And I think, I, I think what really struck a chord with me was the the comparison um, AMR 
and climate change and just that it's you know number one it's not like a single issue it's there's so many different layers to it. you have to peel it back and everything is so connected you know as uh, as we've all seen with covid but it's just it's such a global issue and as well it's i guess treating the problem but also there's education policy regulation and all sorts of legislative and other it's all, it's like a, an all of whole society approach as well as global approach and everyone needs to kind of get on board and, and covid ironically covid unfortunately may have aggravated and exacerbated the situation for AMR. If you look at the reality that millions and millions of patients that have been hospitalized with COVID-19 in hospitals around the globe, there are some meta studies out there, typically between 70% and 80% of all of these hospitalized patients have been given broad spectrum antibiotics. On the flip side, you look at the, um, the data that's emerging now that, and again, depending on which study you look at, in some studies, it's as low as 7% to 14%. In some studies, and we've done some clinical trial work with, with COVID uh, patients, it can be as high as 20 or 25% of patients with COVID that actually get a bacterial co-infection while in the hospital. And of course, if you get a bacterial co-infection, you need antibiotics to treat them. But if you look at that delta, you look at like the 70 to 80% of all patients getting the broad spectrum antibiotics and the 7% to maybe 20, 25% who should be getting it, it's easy to see that we're overtrading by a factor of three to four, at least maybe by a factor of 10. And again, I understand it. If you're a doctor and half my family are intensive care doctors and I've had my brother-in-law has had to triage COVID patients, it's a decision that frankly no person should ever have to make between do I continue giving oxygen to one patient? Have I, if I take it off, I triage, I give it to another, I know that other person's going to die. I understand that out of an overabundance of caution, doctors have been using broad spectrum antibiotics in COVID patients out of a, not because they think those drugs would work to treat COVID, but because the fear that if those patients that are already struggling health-wise if they were to get a bacterial co-infection, it could be, you know, basically a life and death question. But again, by doing so, we have treated millions and millions of patients with broad spectrum antibiotics who didn't need them, frankly, shouldn't have gotten them. And it is almost certain that we will have led to a situation where we see higher rates of multi-drug resistant organisms in these hospitals, in these wards emerging. And, and the data starts to emerge. And again, it always comes with a time lag. So we're just now starting to see some data from 2020. Um, we're probably going to see the 2021 data next year. But you have some wholesale shifts of various broad spectrum antibiotic in terms of usage. It's gone up dramatically. And the reality is, since we, we tried to avoid doing any elective surgeries or anything that wasn't immediately necessary, you know, that's mostly driven by COVID treatment. Um, and so again, you know, it's um, never never an easy decision, but we may wake up, uh, you know, hopefully once we've gotten the whole COVID um, situation behind us and find out that um, the, that threat of antimicrobial resistance, not only has it not gone away, it's actually deteriorated and it's that much bigger of a challenge and it's that much more important and time critical that we take decisive action. Awesome. So, you know, some people, you know, might say, Mr. Shaq, you're, you know, you're being a little bit alarmist, you know, medical technology and precision medicine have come a long way. 
uh, you know, people assume that, you know, the process of you know, researching, developing, producing new drugs is at a rapid pace. It took one year to make a COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, you know, however, you've been stating throughout this conversation, alluding to it, that this is not the case for all types of drugs. So can you talk specifically about those challenges associated with the research and development of new antimicrobials in general, rather? Look, I, I mean, it's been a phenomenal success to the global healthcare and life sciences industry. And I, you know, as I, I, I'm president of the German Biotech Industry Organization and vice chair of the International Council of Biotech Associations here in D.C., I've said so repeatedly over the last several months on stage, I've never been more proud being part of the biotech industry than in these last 18 months. Um, so what that has proven is our ability, if there is a true will at a global scale to come together, fight together, get the job done that we can. But don't forget, that's when all countries, or at least you know many, many uh, countries with highly sophisticated um, technologies and, uh, and, and, and companies uh, and governments and funding, all of a sudden it was all stopgaps were taken out. You look at antimicrobials and antibiotics, if you look at the last 20 to 30 years, the reality is most companies, most big pharmaceutical companies have gotten out of the development of novel antibiotics for a very simple reason. And it's a very logical reason. It's a lousy business. Now you compare if you're a pharmaceutical company and you have a choice to allocate R&D funding into developing a new antibiotic versus developing a new drug for, say, cancer or rheumatoid arthritis, or a cardiovascular disease, or diabetes. All of these other diseases are, no matter what drug you're developing, it usually takes a very similar amount of time and money. Let's call it an average 10 to 12 years and hundreds of millions, some, some would say over a billion dollars, to develop any drug. Now, with antibiotics, your challenge is, if you give your drug to a patient within... 10 to maybe on the outside 20 days, that patient is either healthy and back home or dead. Whereas all these other drugs, you have a cancer patient, you're going to be given your drug for several years, in some cases, of, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or cardiovascular decades at very different price tags. Historically, antibiotics tend to be cheap. And here's an added challenge. So basically, your return on investment just isn't there, which is why a lot of big pharma got out of the development. There are some biotech companies that kind of tried to pick up the baton and, and develop new antibiotics. And there are some couple of challenges with that. There are prime examples here in the United States, a uh, very successful company that had taken a novel antibiotic all the way through the clinic, gotten FDA approval, launched it, a company called Acaogen, within a year of launch, company went into bankruptcy. Why? Well, because the challenge is when you have these new drugs, you really want them to be your new last line of defense. You don't want doctors to use them. You put them on the shelf. Again, it's a bit like, you know, you, you sort of look at sprinkler systems. Well, if, if sprinkler systems were only ever sold in situations where there's a fire, there, there wouldn't be any companies doing sprinkler systems. Now, there are requirements. So, Again, there has been talk for well over a decade. We need to come up with new incentive systems. There have been suggestions of, you know, uh, pull incentives that could be north of a billion dollars to any biotech or pharma company that is developing a new antibiotic. 
and governments could then, you know, kind of, um, you know, almost like like an insurance policy. It, it almost begs the question: Should we leave antimicrobials or antibiotics to private enterprise? Because again, you can't, in a way, you can't blame the pharmaceutical industry because they're making a rational economic decision. It is again, as I said, it is a lousy business. So it's a smart business decision to go after new cancer drugs or go after, um, you know, new Alzheimer's drugs or new, because you have that expectation that if you're successful, you will have patients that they're going to be taking those drugs for, in some cases, decades, and um, and your price points are going to be much, much better. So, uh, you know, really, fundamentally, there's a flaw in the system here. Now, the other piece if you look at the pipeline of new antibiotics, there's um, there was a recent report by the WHO. There's roughly 70 to 80 uh, new antibiotics in the pipeline in the clinic, which sounds great. I mean, it look, it's, it's good stuff. 80% of those drugs, we already know today, there are existing genetic mechanisms for antimicrobial resistance for these new drugs coming out. It used to be 20, 30 years ago, you brought a new antibiotic to market you probably had at least five to 10 years before that you'd ever see um, bugs becoming resistant against that drug. Unfortunately, that situation is no longer true. While there are some really amazing targeted kind of resistance breaking drugs in the development pipelines, um, a lot of these companies are small biotechs and they're struggling. They're struggling to raise capital because venture capitalists are deprioritizing companies developing new antibiotics for the exact same reason. Well, if there's no big pharma in that space, my exit as a venture capital investor isn't there because the odds of being acquired are much slimmer than when I have a new cancer drug. So again, it's all actors in the system are acting rationally and making smart economic choices. At a societal and, and healthcare systems level, it may very well not lead to the desired outcome. So again, I think we got to get creative and start thinking about incentives. Um, again, if it had not been for governments in Europe, in the United States, and Asia, around the world, making commitments of you know hundreds of millions in, in, in cumulative, actually billions of doses of these COVID vaccines, I'm not convinced whether you know Moderna or BioNTech, Pfizer or AstraZeneca would have ever developed those, uh, because it was those government commitments made very early on last year in spring that said, look, we're going to guarantee you to purchase, you know, hundreds of millions of these products um, and not, well, you go out and develop them. And if, if you bring them to market, we may, you know, eventually buy some, but only in those cases where it's last defense, right? We really don't want people to take them. So I, I, again, it's a fantastic lesson of how things can work, but we've got to take that lesson and then apply it and figure out, okay, what's the analogy here? How do we create incentives to get really innovative new antibiotics to market and encourage all of the stakeholders along the way, the companies, the investors, um, the regulatory authorities? Because uh, again, I mean, the, we've seen those vaccines being cleared in, in record time. Um, you just give you the flip side, because uh, it's all public knowledge at Optgen, we have a product which is a rapid test for uh, antimicrobial resistance pending and sitting in front of the US FDA. That product has been sitting there for over a year now. I understand it. The US FDA is inundated with hundreds and hundreds of emergency use authorizations for COVID tests. I, the, the staff there are doing their absolute best at a human level. It's a tragedy. They're overworked, 
underpaid and underappreciated. But the reality is you have a product that would be a one-of-its-kind, first-in-class broad test for antimicrobial resistance simply stuck in a regulatory review process for over a year, which we could you know, basically take out and get to hospitals and labs. Now, we're now anticipating the FDA to complete its review here towards the end of August, so there is some light at the end of the tunnel. But those challenges, again, you know, where there is a will, there is a way, but we've got to be willing to then go that path and bring new drugs through the pipelines faster uh, and make it worth everybody's while. It's the, the, the incentives and it's almost finding like a perfect time and space. I don't, I don't know any, any other better way to put it, but it's finding all the conditions lining up much, much like, you know, how we saw with, with COVID you know, vaccine development, everything, all the conditions were right, were right. And there was political will. And, you know, I think it really takes multiple governments, sectors, whether it's NGOs, private sector, public sector, all coming together to really tackle this issue together. And I think that's, for me, when I when I look at AMR, I think that really needs to be kind of to the path forward, right? Much like you know, climate change or any other other of these global threats or you know, risks, it really you really just can't be tackling it from one angle or from you know as an individual government or a, um, sector. So my final question here, Oliver, is what do you kind of see um, being the future for antimicrobial, um, you know? for responding to antimicrobial resistance outside of uh, the, the pharma lens or outside of the pharma field from like more of like a, a broader all of society approach. Great news here is all of the tools and technologies are there. We do not have to rely on a moonshot of some novel technology to all of a sudden come about. We have it. It exists. Um, I would start with the first thing that needs to happen is a truly global multilateral approach. National governments, uh, international uh, associations, NGOs, you know, whether it's the WHO um, and, uh, you know, really coming together at a global level. The second key piece is education and messaging. We've got to simplify. And again, with climate change, you talk to some of these climate scientists. Part of the challenge is it is super complex. It's not simple stuff. you got to dumb it down to a point where and I've just come back from Europe. You know, when we've seen storms and flooding like I have not seen in my lifetime with hundreds of people die and drown in their own homes. I don't know how many more warnings you see the fires outside of Athens or, you know, in the Mediterranean, you see the fires out in the West uh, here in the United States. How much more of these events and disasters do we need? It's coming together, understanding, first of all, acknowledging that we have a problem. You know, Houston, we've got a problem and we have it at a global level. Now let's get together and then look at messaging and education is going to go a long way. Deploying existing today, existing rapid testing and deploying it at a global level. And again, where there is a will, these tests, you're not talking about something that's super expensive. I mean, for some simple tests, it could be, you know, in the 30 to $50, some of the really sophisticated high-end hospital tests, you're probably going to look at something that costs between, let's call it between $100 and $200. But you've got patients that are intensive care where a single day on an ICU is going to cost you several thousands of dollars. So again, it's something that's absolutely doable with today's technology, today's solutions. If you understand you have a problem, you deploy the technologies, and you then you know, use the existing 
regulatory framework to figure out ways of how do we accelerate things, how do we up-prioritize it from a from an approval standpoint. And then at the back end, and again, this is going to go down to healthcare systems and health insurance, how do we create, you know, it's not even about a super incentive, um, it's just about acknowledging that there's got to be some way for anybody who develops any new solution, whether it's a new drug, a new, new diagnostic, or new device, you know, there's got to be some reasonable amount of reimbursement. Uh, and again, you know, for, as society, we've decided that we're absolutely willing to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to extend cancer patients' lives by a couple of years. It, it, it would behoove us well as mankind to figure out that it's probably not a bad idea to be able and willing to not say, well, a new new antibiotic can only cost, you know, 20 bucks or, or 100 bucks. But it, you know what? It if there's a reasonable amount here that um, ultimately allows people and then, you know, the, the system will work. Um, we have a lot of smart science. It exists. We've seen computer science come to a point where we can now do next generation sequencing, where we can look at the entire sequence of a bacteria in a matter of hours at the cost of just a little over $100. Now, that allows you to look at the totality. We can use artificial intelligence, machine learning algorithms. We have cloud-based solutions that allow us to trace and track. The technology is all there. We just got to be, you know, bringing people together and use it um, and then deploy it with a focus of addressing that challenge. And the first order of business is admit that we have a real issue at hand. And then, you know, I'm an optimist. I, I Otherwise, I wouldn't be an entrepreneur. I believe where there is a will, there is a way. And, um, you know, I think it's it starts and, and ends with education, education, education. So, you know, really um, uh, discussions like this, just getting the word out and understanding that we've got an issue. Again, my, my prime example with climate change, I would never have dreamt that there is that wholesale change in industry. If we can shift people's minds and hearts and then ultimately we'll see shift in resource deployment and novel technologies and we're going to be in a good spot because again we have all the solutions and tools in our hands already today so you know one of the things you keep coming back to throughout this conversation is this really requires a global solution um if it's a siloed approach it's it's going to be hard to make a dent and that brings me back to what you mentioned before about um if we continue to use broad spectrum antibiotics until 2050 uh there could be you know 10 million deaths, I think you mentioned in that time period. Uh, but when you look at the economic costs as well, it sounds like it's somewhere around in a hundred trillion dollar ballpark. So while the return on investment might be low for a singular entity, there is a return on investment for the collective global because you're preventing uh, premature years of life loss, you're preventing death and morbidity. So uh, that speaks to the point where you're, you're banging home. We need everyone's buying on this for it to be uh, for us to achieve the greater societal good. So I think I, that's something that's apparent from what you've been describing. Absolutely, 100% right. And again, I think it's, uh, you know, at that level, it's not rocket science. It's always harder to convince people to spend money today on a, uh, on a greater societal good that's a few years out. Um, but, but again, you know, 20, 30 years, while it may seem a long time, really isn't in the grand scheme of things. And it, it will come around much faster than... Uh, than everybody thinks and and again given how long it takes under most circumstances to develop any new product uh, you know again you, you probably have another 
two, maybe three product generations on the outside between today and 2050. So we better get started today. People might be wondering then, you've talked a lot about AMR, you've talked a lot about the solutions that are in place that just needs to be integrated for, for a global approach to at least maybe we can never truly outpace, you know, you know, antimicrobial resistance. Uh, you mentioned that there's a drugs in the pipeline for which there's already detected uh, resistance to those drugs before it even comes to market. So um, people might be wondering, you know, if we project out the future threat, the future danger, you mentioned WHO had put AMR as one of the biggest global threats. You know, will the second pandemic post 2020 uh, be caused by a multi-drug resistant uh, superbug? Back in the day, it was, I know, Yersinia pestis uh, was a gram-negative bacteria that did cause a pandemic. So it, it's not uh, far-fetched to think that something like that could happen again. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, will it? Who knows? Nobody knows, fortunately. Does it have the potential to be, you know, a multi-drug resistant bacterial organism that could cause the next global pandemic? Absolutely, yes. And if it were to be one, the challenge might be, you know, even greater because, again, trying to come up with a vaccine for bacterial infection may not be as easy as it has been for a relatively simple virus. I think it's, it's a, as I said, it's a wake-up call. Uh, it has happened in the past. And let's not forget, bacteria have been on this planet for billions of years. They've been here, you know, way before man ever was, and they will be here a long time after man is no longer on the planet. So, in a way, again, they're they're trying to they're trying to survive. They're, they will be here. We've just got to figure out a way of living with them, um, and, and you know, be smart about how we do that. Well, Oliver, I think it's you know it's it's been our pleasure to have you um, really on this podcast today to talk about this important issue. And I think you've reiterated many times that, um, you know, antimicrobial resistance is, is an, is an issue for us all. And as humanity, um, maybe in closing, if you don't, if you'd mind, um, summarizing a couple of the key takeaway messages for our listeners back at home, and even some of their, guess the actions that the average person can do to join the fight against AMR. Um, I think that would be super valuable. If we think about AMR, the three letters, AMR, A as in actionable, M as in measurable, and R as in revolutionary, we have the ability to, to act. And that can be as simple as next time you go see your doctor for an infection, don't ask them for an antibiotic. Don't push them to prescribe antibiotics. I mean, they will likely do it, but in those cases where truly your disease requires an antibiotic, the doctor will tell you, but don't don't push for getting antibiotics and spread the word. I think, again, if we can all collectively spread the word and understand that it's something we all got to join in and do together, then I think we're going to be in a good spot. And, you know, we can lead the revolution with technologies that we have today and into the future and uh, address that challenge again, as we're showing with COVID that we can address these challenges. We're showing it with climate change that we are willing to change and adapt. And, you know, as a species, that's the one optimistic piece I have. We've always been willing to adapt and change and technology and innovation is a key driver of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think we have all the ingredients and let's get it done together. Amazing. Well, here to hear folks, AMR, antimicrobial resistance, actionable, measurable, revolutionary. Thank you so much, Oliver. Appreciate it. Well, appreciate it, Gordon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast. 
your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.